Well, you'll see in your bulletin that we're pulling from several scripture passages uh, again this morning. This is going to be our final uh, sermon in this little mini-series in Ephesians we've done on the subject of marriage. Uh, and so I want to read these texts uh, on the front end here. And I'm going to add one very briefly that's actually not in your bulletin, so bear with me on that one. Uh, but we're looking at, at a few passages in Genesis, and then also we'll be back in Ephesians 5. So, this is God's word, first of all from Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then let me read briefly. It's not in your bulletin. Genesis 1:28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then you can look again. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. This is, this is after the fall. This is after Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and eaten uh, from the forbidden fruit. Uh, to the woman, he said, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. And then Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the wife submits to Christ, so also, so, so as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the institution of, of marriage and, and the joy that it can bring into our lives. Uh, I pray that you would help me to speak uh, clearly uh, and truthfully, faithfully to your word today. Uh, Father, I pray that if in any way that, that I go astray, that you would just blow that away and cause us not to hear it. But Father, in the things that are true and accurate and faithful to your word, I pray that you will impress them uh, deeply on our hearts, that you would open not only our ears, but our hearts and our minds to hear and to believe and to welcome your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by reading from two different journal entries. One is from a husband and one, one is from a wife. This is the wife's journal entry. Tonight I thought my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long, so I thought he was upset at the fact that I was a bit late, but he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled silently and kept driving. I can't explain his behavior. I don't know why he didn't say, I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I had lost him completely, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure that his thoughts are with someone else. My life is a disaster. All right, here's the, some of y'all know where this is going. Here's the husband's journal entry. Motorcycle won't start, and I can't figure out why. That's all. That's, that was it. Now, <clears throat> perhaps that's a bit stereotypical, but, but, it, but it gets at something that we're, we're going to talk about today. Uh, we are in this mini-series in marriage, and we define marriage as a covenant relationship uh, between a man and a woman that involves a lifelong commitment to be loving and to be faithful uh, and to make another person the most important person in your life. Uh, last week, we looked at the purpose of marriage and said that marriage exists for the purpose of deep friendship, for our sanctification sanctification for children and, and to be this picture and representation of the gospel. What I want to ask this morning is the question, um, how can I have a beautiful marriage? How can, how can my marriage be beautiful? Uh, and here's how we're going to get at it. Uh, men and women are different. And as they bring those differences into the unique roles that God has given us in marriage and play those roles that God has given them to play, marriage actually becomes a thing of beauty. Two people who are very different coming uh, and becoming one and creating this thing of beauty. Another way to say that is to say that marriage is a dance. Uh, marriage is a dance. Now, 
when I was a kid, most of the dances that we went to, um, we, like, and Susan's scared I'm going to dance now, but most of the dances that we went to involved, like, you kind of did your own thing by yourself, like in a big group, like you weren't really dancing with somebody else. You're just kind of all out there bouncing around. And I get the idea that that's still what middle school dances are like. Like, like until you get to the kind of the, the awkward slow dance at the end, like everybody just sort of doing, I don't know, I don't know what they're doing, but, but they're just kind of bouncing around out there. And, and it's fun and all. But a few years ago, Susan's parents started uh, shagging again. And then they taught us how to shag, or at least they, they taught um, Emma and Will. I didn't pick it up very well. But, it, but, it, but it's, actually, it's actually a simple dance, too. But, but, but real dances involve two people, and there's a pattern to them. You're not just out there running around doing your thing. You think of a, a waltz or anything else, uh, dancing with the stars, whatever. Like, there, there are two people doing different things, and yet together they come and they're doing this one thing that is very beautiful. But it's only beautiful as you follow the pattern of the dance. You follow the rules of the dance. And so marriage is intended to be this beautiful dance between a husband and a wife, but it's only beautiful as we follow the pattern of the dance, the rules of the dance. Our problem is we can't dance. And we don't follow the rules very well. And so we have to learn to dance. And so those are going to be our points today. Uh, the reality of the dance, the rules of the dance, the fact that we can't dance, uh, and then learning to dance. So, so first of all, the reality of the dance. Let's talk about these texts in Genesis just a moment and what they tell us uh, about marriage. First of all, they tell us that Adam and Eve, man and woman, are made in the image of God. They're equal in dignity and value and worth. Neither of them is better or more important than the other. Secondly, we see, though, that they are different. That, that God created them male and female. There are physical differences, but there are also differences uh, that go much different, deeper than that. Men and women are different. Uh, gender differences are not real. They're not accidental they're created by God. Uh, God creates Adam, and he says, and we've looked at this for the last couple of weeks, it's not good for him to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Uh, the, the Hebrew literally says, like opposite him. And so God creates Eve, and he brings Eve to Adam, and Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is Adam saying, no, that, that, that's it. That's the one I've been looking for. Now, now we've got a plan. You're not me, but at the same time, you're me. You're, you're the missing part. And so they're complementary, male and female, like two pieces of one puzzle. Uh, we also see here that Eve is created to be Adam's helper. Now, I think when we hear helper, it's kind of an unfortunate way to translate into English. But we think of kind of junior assistant. Like, I'm going to be daddy's little helper while he works on the car, which means i got to get a wrench every now and then. But that's not the idea here. Uh, the word helper here is actually the same word that's used of God to describe the help that he brings to Israel. God is the helper of Israel. And so the fact that Adam needs a helper doesn't say that Eve is inferior. It says that Adam needs help. That Adam wasn't created to be able to do the job by himself, but he needed Eve to come alongside him in their callings. 
And what this means is that Eve then had strengths that Adam didn't have, and Adam had strengths that Eve didn't have. They complete each other. And what that means is, and this is something we're, we're, we're afraid to say anymore because of the, just kind of the climate that we live in, but there are some things that women are better at than men, and there are some things that men are better at than women because of the way we're wired. Now, what are those things? I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Um, but, 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 that's, but that's just, that's just true. There's just those that we can talk about those as a community group. Um, we're, we're created with, with equal value, but they're created with equal value, but they're different. And therefore, they have differing strengths and differing weaknesses and differing gifts. Well, how are they different? And I want to I want to tread very lightly here. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling most of this from a, from a couple of old Tim Keller sermons, but I want to kind of throw this out for us to, to, to think about and mull over. Uh, but Keller says you can see from the fact that Adam, from his naming of the animals, that his job is to bring order out of disorder. And what that matches up with the fact that we're seeing in much recent research that, that men have this gift of independence. That men have this gift of independence. That they're, they're wired to make impact. They're wired to make impact. That men do nurture, but they nurture in order to bring about impact. They look outward. They initiate. Uh, Eve, on the other hand, because she was created to be Adam's helper, women are wired to use their, their, their power and their strength to enable their husband. Eve's using her power and strength to enable Adam. So women see themselves as maturing not so much into independence but into interdependence. They receive. They nurture. They're more inwardly perceptive. Uh, they, they do desire to make impact, but they make impact in order to nurture, kind of the reverse of the way men go about it. Now, I'm not sure if all that's exactly right, but I think it's worth sort of, sort of mulling over. But I think he's on to something because I, I can illustrate it with, a, with, with, a, with an illustration from White Men Can't Jump. Uh, and anytime you can tie Tim Keller and White Men Can't Jump together, it must be true. So um, if you remember this movie, it's, it's a really old movie. But, but in this movie, uh, Woody Harrelson is this basketball player, and he's dating Rosie Perez. Uh, and you have to hear, if you know Rosie Perez, you, she, I wish I could have her, like, speaking her lines here. But, but he's dating Rosie Perez, and she tells him that she's thirsty. And so Woody gets up, and he goes, and he gets a glass of water, and he brings it back to her, and she just kind of throws the water down. And he's like, what's going on? And, and this is what she says. See, if I'm thirsty, I don't want a glass of water. I want you to sympathize. I want you to say, Gloria, I too know what it feels like to be thirsty. I too have had a dry mouth. I want you to connect with me through sharing and understanding the concept of my dry mouthedness. All right. And I actually always use illustration with guys when they're about to get married. Um, but so, so later in the movie, she, the same thing happens again. And she says, I'm thirsty. So this time, what does he do? He pulls out a guitar, and he, he sings this song that he's written. Um, I will never bring you water when you're thirsting in our bed. You know I understand dry-mouthedness, and I sympathize instead. 
And so I, I, you, can you just see that though? He wants, he wants to do, he wants to fix the situation. He wants to fix the situation. He wants to have impact. She wants to nurture the relationship and to bring about better understanding between the two of them to talk and to connect. Neither of them is right. So I think we kind of like in our own, we're like the men are like, well, Woody's right. And the women are like, well, the glory is right. But neither of them are, are right. Neither of them are necessarily correct. They're neither right nor wrong. It's, it's just a thing. It's part of the beauty of how we're made in the image of God and yet different. So when these two different people from, from two different genders come together in marriage, it actually creates something very beautiful. It's not just two voices singing in unison. It's actually voices singing in harmony. It's a dance. It's fluid. Uh, the two are connected. One is, is leading the dance. The other is, is following that lead in the dance. One stepping forward as the other steps backward. And you may have heard this quote. I just heard it for the first time when I was, I was looking up stuff for the sermon. Uh, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did, but she did it backwards and in high heels. Okay? And so it, it creates, and you're, you're doing different things, but it's creating one dance. And that's what brings about the beauty of marriage. Now, just a couple applications real quick. Uh, married couples, you're made to dance. Don't, don't you want to know how? Don't you want to learn how to dance? Don't you want your marriage to be beautiful in that way? Uh, secondly, don't fall into the trap of thinking that because your spouse is wired differently, more emotional or less emotional or, or whatever the case may be, don't think that the fact that they're wired differently than you are makes them inferior. That, that different wiring is actually brought into your life to complete you, to make up for places where you're lacking and to help make you better than what you could be on your own. So that's the reality of the dance. But the dance does have rules. So, so what are the rules of the dance? I want to make this point quickly because <clears throat> I'm actually going to, and i got some dry mouth in this right now, so if anyone would like to sing to me. What are the rules of this dance? I'm going to reinforce these in a minute. Uh, every, every dance has rules. Every dance has a pattern that, that you're supposed to follow. Uh, there's a pattern to the dance of this marriage in Genesis. It's simply this. Uh, Adam was to lead and, and Eve was to submit to the leadership of her husband. Uh, you see it in the fact that Adam was created first and the New Testament frequently draws on that fact. Uh, Adam is given the, the, the moral pattern for how they're supposed to live and, and what they're not supposed to do. Adam is questioned first after they actually fall in the sin. Adam's held primarily accountable for their sin. Uh, and this, this is reinforced then like in passages like the one we're reading this morning. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love and serve your wives. So there are rules to this dance. Problem is, and here's where the problem comes in, is that we, we, we can't dance. Um, man and woman enter into this beautiful union where man is to be the leader in the relationship. And right, look, all they've got to do is dance, right? That's, that's all they need to do. Well, why can't they dance? What's the problem? Well, to quote from that great 80s group wham, um, guilty feet have gotten no rhythm. Guilty feet have gotten no rhythm. What happens? They've got guilty feet. Adam and Eve disobey God. That's the story of what happens in the garden, right? 
They eat, eat the forbidden fruit, and suddenly Adam's blaming Eve and God. This woman that you put here with me gave me the fruit. The woman's blaming the serpent, and God levels this curse on them because of what's happened here. And verse 16 is very important in this. Look at verse 16 of Genesis 3 again. It's about middle of your page. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that line, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, um, is, is important. Commentators are agreed that what's being said uh, is that what should have been a servant leadership on the part of the husband is now turned into this harsh uh, attempting to dominate their wives. You'll, you'll rule over. Your husband's going to rule over you. They're a little more divided, though, when it comes to Eve. Uh, some think that's what this verse is saying is that, that Eve will, pe will forever be trying to, to fight back uh, against her husband and that, that desire for her husband is going to be expressed in her trying to take the lead from him. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sub submit. My desire is to master you. Uh, others think, though, that the desire here is simply that. Her desire is for her husband. Like it's this over-desire. That even though her husband is, is, is ruling her harshly, I can't live without a man. And so I've got to have a man. And so it's like this idolatrous uh, desire for a man and for a husband. Um, that giftedness that women have of interdependence becomes dependence, an unhealthy dependence then under sin. Uh, men's gift for independence is turned into autonomy and selfishness uh, and this desire to dominate another person. And I think you can see all of these. Uh, in, in men, some of, sometimes what this looks like is men who actually abdicate their responsibility to lead but then they kind of come back in the scene from every once, every once in a while and they try to dominate almost in a rage. And so it's kind of, it's kind of schizophrenic. You're withdrawing, but then you're coming back and you're, with, you're ruling harshly uh, over your wife. One thing I think is very important for men to realize is that even when you abdicate <clears throat> leadership, you're still leading. You're still setting a tone there. Uh, you're just setting the wrong tone. Ephesians says that the husband is the head of the wife, and you're the head of the wife whether you're functioning as you should uh, or not. You'll either be a good head or a bad head, but you're always going to be the head, the leader. And here's what one writer, how one writer put it. If a husband tries to run away from his headship, that abdication will dominate the home. If he, if he gets on a plane to the other side of the country, he will dominate in and by his absence. How many children have grown up in a home dominated by the empty chair at the table? We're made to dance. Okay, we're, we're made to dance within this context of marriage. But sin distorts our God-given roles in marriage. So instead of the thing of beauty, we begin to have more of a disaster. And, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think this is interesting. It's not only within marriage that our gender roles get twisted up. Our, our male and female gets twisted in general. And I want you to listen to what, what Kathy Keller said. Uh, dominant, swaggering, and sinful male behavior 
is assumed to be the default mode if one wishes to get ahead or to be taken seriously in the world. Women are asked to shed their feminine qualities and become faux men in order to be one of the boys. The strengths of gender distinct leadership, creativity, and insight that women bring to the world are lost. Now we can, and, and, and some women, those of you who are in the workplace have probably experienced some of this, just in, in, a, in a, what has for a long time been a male-dominated workplace, and we could wrap a trail on that for a long time. But, but all of this, it has ramifications for marriage, but it has ramifications outside of our marriages as well. But let's look at the heart of this. What's the, the heart of the reason that we have this trouble with dancing? Why can't we dance? The real problem at the root of all this is our self-centeredness. It's our self-centeredness. Uh, Ephesians 5 calls wives really to die to themselves and to submit to the leadership of their husband. It calls husbands to die as Jesus died for his church and to lovingly serve their wives. Husbands and wives are then called to be other-centered and not self-centered, and that's where the rub comes. Uh, everything about our sinful nature wants it to be about me. Um, yesterday morning, uh, I was doing some work at home, and Susan had gone uh, to go to some yard sales, and the boys had to go to the high school for sports physicals. And Susan called me from the yard sale, and she said, can you, can you fill out, finish filling out Jack's medical form so that I don't have to fill it out when we get there and I can go ahead and, and have it done? And I said, sure, that's fine. But what I, was, I wasn't thinking, what a wonderful opportunity to serve my wife as Jesus served the church. I was thinking, I'm working here, and you're at a yard sale. Why don't I have to stop for two minutes and fill out this paperwork? All right? But that, that's, that's what our hearts can be like because we're, we're so turned in on ourselves. We're so self-centered that it's very hard, even when we do the right thing, to do it for the right reasons, that our, that our, that our motives and our hearts are very warped. And so that makes it very hard for us to dance. It's really hard for, for selfish people to actually dance. So we're made to dance, but we can't dance. We won't follow the rules of the dance. So how do we learn how to dance? Here's what I'm afraid of with, with this sermon. Um, that either, number one, you'll just get angry at me, like, ah, blah, 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 and, and just you know, forget about the whole thing. Or number two, you'll kind of take your lumps, and you'll be a little more convicted about something, and you'll grit your teeth, and you'll go home, and you say, all right, I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to be the husband I'm supposed to be. I'm going to love like Jesus love church. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be the wife I'm supposed to be. But here's the thing. If you think the problem that you've created by breaking the rules is going to be fixed simply by your trying harder to keep the rules, then you're delusional. And I'm delusional. Um, if you've ever cut wet grass, really thick wet grass, you know when you're doing that, like the lawnmower gets stopped up every like five feet, which is why you hate to cut thick, wet grass. And so you have to you have to bend over and you're constantly pulling wet grass out of the discharge of the mower. And you do that long enough, and you go inside, and your hands are they're green, right? And that green doesn't go away quick. I mean, that's not just like some ivory soap. That's like a day or two, and you're just like, why are my hands still green? Uh, it's because they're stained. Our, our selfishness 
creates that kind of stain on us. Our self-centeredness creates that kind of stain. Uh, we're all stained by our sin, by our self-centeredness. And we spend all this time and energy trying to get rid of it ourselves, trying to cover it up so that nobody sees how self-centered we really are. And then we come into marriage. And we're right there, arm in arm, trying to dance with this other person. And suddenly they're like, what's that on your hand? Like, they, they can see your sin up close. And you can see their sin up close. Marriage helps you see sin like you've never seen it before. So what do you do? Do you just try, try really hard or you just say, forget it, we're going to ignore the rules and do what you want to do? No, look at what Paul does in Ephesians 5. He lays the rules in front of us again. Husbands, lead and, and serve your wives. Wives, submit to your husband. And he even kind of raises the bar. It's not just uh, lead and serve your wives. It's, it's love them as Christ loved the church and died for her. And, and wives, submit to your husband as the church tries to submit to Jesus who died for the church. And so Paul raises the bar almost, but then he also interjects the gospel. Verse 26, start on 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, we have to realize that what we fundamentally need is a Savior. What we need is a Savior. Uh, and that the only way, husbands, that you're going to sacrificially love your wives as you lead them is if you realize what Jesus has done for you. If you realize that Jesus has served you. If you see the way Jesus has given up his life for you. And you have to come back to that and be softened by that. Uh, wives, the only way you're going to submit to your husbands, if you see the way in which Jesus submitted to the will of his father and went to the cross for you, to redeem you, to remove that stain from you, we have to see the gospel. We have to see the gospel over and over and over again. This good news of what Jesus has done, and our hearts have to be changed from that, by that, before we're ever enabled to love and serve one another. I, I can only find real joy, I can only find the ability to do this in knowing Jesus and what He's done for me. And here's the thing in justification, Jesus has removed that stain, right? If we stand before God, there's no more stain. But in our daily lives and sanctification, it's still very much there. And our spouses can see it. And it's like that grass thing that feels like it's going to take forever to get rid of. And what God has done is he's put your spouse in your life to actually help with that process, to help you with this process uh, of sanctification. And he's, he's given you both his word, and he's called you to play these roles in your play. He's called you to take on these roles and to dance. And he's saying, submit to these roles I've given you. 
be sanctified by your husband, be sanctified by your wife. Submit to these roles I've given you. I've given you a dance. I've given you a dance. Will you dance? Will you dance? Will you learn what it means to dance? And if you do, if you do, as you do this, I think you'll find you'll get in touch with who you really are in ways that will surprise you. When you submit to these roles that God has given you in this dance. Now believe the gospel. Believe that your sins are forgiven. And then pick up the script. Pick up the pattern of this dance. Pick up the word. And follow what God has given us to do. Now, if you do that, three things, and I'll close. If you'll do that, what will happen is you'll be free to see that your self-centeredness is the biggest issue in your marriage. And you'll stop pointing fingers at your spouse. So your self-centeredness is the biggest issue. Number two, you'll quit demanding so much from your spouse. And number three, you'll be free to reflect the grace that you received back to your spouse. You'll actually be able to forgive because you know what it means to well, if you want your marriage to be a dance, I know this is going to sound cheesy, but if you want your marriage to, to, to be a dance, you've got to be dancing with Jesus first. You, you've got to be dancing with Jesus if you want your marriage to be a dance. The real question, the one I want you to, to, to take home with you today, not so much, how am I doing all these roles, but I want you to ask yourself, am I dancing with Jesus? I dance with Jesus. And I think if you are, then all this marriage stuff is going to start working itself out. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I, I do pray that you help us to see our great need and your great provision uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, I do pray that our marriages would both draw us to Jesus as we see our sin. But also, as Jesus sanctifies us, that our marriages really would paint a picture of the gospel. Uh, and that others would be drawn to Jesus uh, as they see the beauty of the dance. Uh, God, we confess our selfishness. We confess our sin. We pray that you change us. Uh, and that by washing it with water and word, that you would make us and our marriages beautiful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.